So Joshua chapter 8, last time we were together, which was only a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? We were looking at chapter 7 where they tried to attack Ai and it all went wrong and we were looking at Achan's sin. So chapter 8 then, then the Lord said to Joshua after all that kerfuffle, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai, for I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off the plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You are to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you be on the alert. I and all those with me will advance on the city. And when the men come out against us as they did before, we will flee from them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city, for they will say they are running away from us as they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. When you have taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it. You have my orders. Then Joshua sent them off, and they went to the place of ambush and lay in wait between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai, but Joshua spent that night with the people. Early the next morning, Joshua mustered his men, and he and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. The entire force that was with him marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai with the valley between them and the city. Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. They had the soldiers take up their positions, all those in the camp to the north of the city and the ambush to the west of it. That night Joshua went into the valley. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in battle at a certain place overlooking the Arabah. But he did not know that an ambush had been set against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them, and they fled towards the desert. All the men of Ai were called to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were lured away from the city. Not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out towards Ai the javelin that is in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. So Joshua held out his javelin towards Ai. As soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. They entered the city and captured it and quickly set it on fire. The men of Ai looked back and saw the smoke of the city rising against the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction, for the Israelites who had been fleeing towards the desert had turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that smoke was going up from the city, they turned around and attacked the men of Ai. The men of the ambush also came out of the city against them so that they were caught in the middle with Israelites on both sides. Israel cut them down, leaving them neither survivors nor fugitives. But they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the desert where they had chased them, 
And when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. Twelve thousand men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of the city, as the Lord had instructed Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take his body from the tree and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses, which he had written. All Israel, aliens and citizens alike, with their elders, officials and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing those who carried it, the priests who were Levites. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the aliens who lived among them. How do you see God? When you picture God, what's the expression on his face? It's a, it's a rhetorical question. I don't want an answer for that. But it's interesting, isn't it? We sometimes have various pictures of who we think God is. And to some extent, you can tell what kind of picture people have by the way they address him or their response to his word. Right at the beginning of this chapter, having just had this abortive attempt to take AI and then discover that they couldn't take it because of Achan's sin and having to go through all that procedure to find out Achan and deal with the sin, the people are fearful and discouraged. They are there, I know that, because God says, do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. Well, if they weren't afraid and discouraged, then there would be no point in saying that, would they? So they are fearful and discouraged. The past sin has been dealt with, life can resume, but the disaster Achan brought upon them has left fear and discouragement in its wake. And it can seriously affect how the people see God. Because God does not want us to be discouraged. He does not want his people to respond to him out of abject fear. He wants them to love him. So when we see God as a God of judgment, our reaction becomes one of fear, slavish terror, not faith. And this chapter moves the people from a position of fear to one of faith. God rather wants us to be in loving dependence on him as our mighty heavenly father. The book of Judges will develop this very theme. By the time that Joshua and all his generation die, the book of Judges is begun. And they will constantly sin, and their sin will constantly bring the judgment of God upon them, and they will constantly be crying out for God's rescue. 
and God will constantly be sending judges to them. But their relationship will become more and more of people who are literally terrified of God. So they want someone else to stand in the gap. So they become more and more distant from one another. It's going to happen in the book of Kings too. The very opposite of what God wants. He does not want a formal relationship with us where we stand at a distance and revere him in some distant kind of way. He calls us his sons and daughters. He draws us into his family. It's a lovely picture of God saying, come and join me. That's exactly what the Bible's all about. God, this perfect community of three, extends it to make a fourth. We are the bride of Christ. So reverent fear is an absolutely appropriate response to God, but not the one of a cringing slave, but a fear that says, I know who you are, and I'm overwhelmed at the grace that you have given to me, knowing who I am, and we come to him in love and goodness, don't we? not holding him at a distance. So this is not a good place to be. The people's sin have incurred God's anger. But he wants us to love him with all our hearts. The previous book, Deuteronomy, has told us that God wants them to love him with all their hearts and with all their souls. When Jesus is invited to tell what is the most important commandment, he chooses the one from the book of Deuteronomy and says... You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Love, not obey, notice. You're not to obey the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, but you're to love the Lord your God. That's the motivation. The motivation of the kingdom of God is one of love. And Paul will say to the Corinthians, whatever you do, however grand or super or wonderful, if you do not do it because you love, it really is worthless. It's radical stuff, isn't it? So with all his heart, God does not want them to serve him out of fear. He wants to serve them to him to... I'm in that stage again, aren't I? He wants them to serve him out of love. Love for him, love for other people. Then anything will count. So we are called, some of you will be thinking, oh yes, all right, you can say that, Charles, but we are called the slaves of God, the slaves of Christ. You read it in the New Testament, and you're absolutely right. But when we use these pictures from images of humanity, we must be careful how we use them. We are called to be little children, aren't we? Except you become like little children, you can't enter the kingdom of God. But that's not to say that we are utterly and completely dependent on each, each other to do everything. We have a little tiny grandson who needs people to feed him, wash him, clean him, move him around and all the rest of it. That's not the picture that Jesus is creating here. He's talking about transparency. He's talking about honesty, of not, not running a second agenda. So you have to use it carefully. The picture of it being a good soldier. Paul talks about us being a good soldier. What? You mean like we go around shooting each other? Being aggressive? Well, that's not the picture he's using. He's talking about the image of a soldier persevering, enduring hardship. That's the image he wants. He's not saying be like a soldier in every regard. He's saying as soldiers endure hardship in order to accomplish a vision, that's what we should do too. And so when he talks about being a slave to God, he's not talking about cringing slaves. He's talking about someone whose life is completely devoted to the one they are a slave to. 
So God wants us freely to choose and love him. Very many years ago, when I was a little toddler in primary school, I still remember our headmaster, Mr. L.I. South. I never got to know what the L.I. stood for, but his surname was South. And he would play uplifting classical music when all us kids used to walk into the assembly. And in those days, of course, cross-legged on the floor, no seats to sit on. And we'd all have to do it in total silence. So we'd be at this uplifting music and so forth, trying to inculcate something into these kids but I remember one of his prayers that he would constantly pray he used the one from Augustine of Hippo O Lord God the light of the minds who know you the life of the souls that love you and the strength of the hearts that serve you help us so to know you that we may truly love you and so to love you that we may fully serve you whom to serve is perfect freedom Because he even then wanted us to know that loving God was about being free, not being restricted. So this is why God says to them, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. God wants them to be confident, but not confident in themselves. He wants them to be confident in God. So I loved your prayer about the Spirit coming a few weeks ago in that particular way. Because without him, nothing can happen, can it? He wants us to call upon him that we might know his fullness from presence. So he confirms that a further attack is needed, but it's going to be directed by God, and this time it will succeed. So I told you the stories of Jericho and Ahi are told to us at length to give us an idea of how it works in practice. Jericho was a signal, victory, wonderful, but they very soon got the idea they could do it themselves. And Ahi tells them that it won't work. You've got to be as dependent on the, for the second as the third and fourth. No matter how many times you've done it, we need God just as much. And this time everyone is going to be involved. Everyone is going to be involved. What? All 603,000 men that the numbers tells us about against a city of 12,000 people? It's a bit overkill, isn't it? No, it's not. Because it's not just about military might, it's about all God's people being involved in things. And just as we move on from Achan and his sin, does God still think of sin like that? Yes, he does. Look at the cross. But the thing is, the cross has dealt with it, hasn't it? Has dealt with your sin and my sin and any sin, hasn't it? That's the truth of it. God still sees sin as clearly and as awfully as he did in the days of Joshua but he has forgiven us our sin in Jesus Christ so we have these wonderful verses as far as the east is from the west you can get the north and south a distance but you can't get a distance from the east and the west can you it goes on forever I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more he says in Jeremiah the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sins so the sin of Achan is past It's been dealt with. That's the way to move on. So now what's going to happen? They have a fresh beginning. And God's strategy is to turn their weakness into victory. Did you spot that as we read through? His strategy is to take their weakness and turn it into strength. So as we said last time, it could be the very thing you're weakest about can be the point at which God's strength and glory can be manifest in remarkable ways. Why is he going to send everyone? Because the last time, you see, the, 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 the spies came back and said, oh, don't worry, everybody, just, just two or three, we can handle it. Just, you know, the rest can 
have a barbecue or something and rest and recuperate and take their time off. Just two or three will cover it. But this time they're all going to go up and I wonder why. Here's a few thoughts I thought of here. The work of entering into the purposes of God is for everybody, not just for some, isn't it? It's not for the guy at the front, not for the team at the front, not for the folks who are super spiritual, whatever that might mean. It's for everybody, isn't it? And God wants them to know that. So taking AI is not about overkill. It's about everyone being involved. This is very important. You probably can observe something in churches. When they're small churches, the chances are that most people are involved in most of the activities of the church most of the time. But when churches get bigger, the proportion of people who are actually involved in things drops, doesn't it? It may, in numerical terms, be larger, but as a proportion of the church, it can drop. Yet, what should happen is everyone is involved all the time. I think that's what God wants to impress upon them. This is not just to work for a few, but for everyone. Everyone involved, whoever you are. Everyone Some are not going to get anywhere near anyone else. There's far too many of them. But they're going to be caught up in the battle. They're going to be caught up in what's going on. It'll be their victory participating in it. There's also a need to train the people in warfare. As you get to the book of Judges, you discover that God leaves things around in order to train the people in warfare. We need all to be aware of what's going on. It's not for the certain group, it's for every one of us to be involved in that. And psychologically, after a failure, it's very important for everyone to be involved in the victory. To move them all on. Help them all see that that actually, sin does not have the last word. God always has the last word. You can deal with sin and move on from it. So God will turn their weakness into strength. They're to capitalize on the very thing that brought them down for last time. They're going to repeat their running away, just like they did before. And it's going to lure the AI's folk out of the city, and they're going to be captured. So God turns their weakness into strength. Doesn't Paul say something about that, doesn't he? In all things, God works for the good of those who love God. He's not saying that everything's going to work out, notice. You've probably spotted that in your life already, haven't you? It doesn't all work out, does it? But God can turn it for good. Even the things that disappoint you go wrong, don't work out. God can use them for the good. So he's not promising that nothing's going to go wrong. What he's promising is that God can use everything. And the manifestation of that, of course, most of all, is that, isn't it? The cross. The moment when the devil thought his greatest victory had been accomplished was actually the point at which he was defeated. Talk about turning weakness into strength. Defeat into victory. As Jesus submitted completely to the will of men, men discovered he was submitting completely to the will of God. And a complete reversal. So they're going to have a success in which all have taken part. A success that comes from the word of God. I have given, I have delivered this city into your hands. A success that will build up their faith again. They are on track again. That's what we need when we fail. We need to know that things go, can work out again. That's why we need to put sin to one side and work on it. And a success that will further undermine the opposition of their enemies. But then in verse 30, 
comes a little important adjunct to this story as they've taken the city now. I'll leave you to work out all the numbers and all the strategy and things. It's quite a clever little strategy. But he takes the, the land in the name of the Lord. It's very important at this point. They've entered into the land, gone across the, Jericho, the Jordan River, attacked Jericho and Ai, and they're just two cities into the land now. And if they were just a marauding army going to take the land, they would have continued on, but they stop. And these stopping points are very significant, but they tell us so much. They tell us that it's not just about going in and wiping people out. It is about being the people of God, taking the land, inheriting the land. So when they got across the river, do you remember? At Gilgal, they stopped and circumcised all the men who hadn't been circumcised before. We discussed that before. We won't go through it again. But it actually rendered them as useless as soldiers for a good few days. Not the sort of thing that's good preparation for taking the war further into the country. The reason for that was it was a reminder they do it in God's way. So now having established a bridgehead into the land, having all been there now and they've cut into the people of God, they stop and declare their allegiance to God. One commentator says this, history can furnish few scenes so impressive in moral grandeur as that of a nation thus solemnly embracing God's law as the rule of its life and the condition of its prosperity. At the very beginning of their campaign, they're pausing to say, Lord, we are your people and we are doing this in obedience to you. This is not our battle, it's yours. This is not our land, it's yours, but you are giving it to us and we take it in your name. So first of all, they have an offering of love. They build an altar of uncut stones and they offer sacrifices on it. This is in obedience to Moses' command, an offering of love. They will be told when they farm their fields that the first crops of their field they are to give to God as an offering of love. It's a reminder to them that everything issues out of this relationship of love. They are first and foremost worshippers. Wherever they are, whatever they do, they are worshippers of God. So I, we had an event at Ashburnham Place that Lynn and I were leading and we had uh, one lady who had to leave us earlier so Lynn and I got up there particularly early to make sure she got her breakfast which meant we were there earlier than we normally were and I just wanted to go into the servery by the kitchen and as I went in there, the team that were about to serve breakfast to all the guests were just standing together in a group praying. Sights like that really bless me, don't they you? where people are just going to do, they're going to serve people food, they're going to cook food, they're going to serve food, they're going to clear dishes, they're going to wash up dishes, all very practical. You can't get more practical than that, can you? But they want to do it as an offering of love to God. And offering it that way transforms it, doesn't it? Way beyond just mere service for the sake of it, to an act of worship to God. And so we can do. So this is what they're doing. They're not becoming warriors, vicious warriors, but they're, what they're doing is an act of worship to God. They're doing it in obedience to God. So as you go through the week this week, as you enter into the things of God, take time regularly, briefly, momentarily, to say, Lord, I do this for you. 
This is an act of worship to you. It could be a momentary prayer as you pause between things, as you pick up a phone, just before you do, say, Lord, fill me with grace to answer this phone with grace. So that everything we do, as far as possible, is an act of worship to God. And then when we are too busy even to think our own thoughts, let alone pray to God, that same attitude carries over into the rest of life. And the second point, of course, is a challenge to faith. It's an offering of love, but it's also a challenge to faith. Joshua reads the book of the law again. He's actually written it. What he's done is put plaster over some stones and then rewritten it physically in the land now. He's not only got it on tablets of stone that they, they kept, but he's also written it physically onto these immovable stones where they're stationed. But it's a challenge to faith. This is how we're going to live. We're going to choose life. We're going to seek God's blessing. We're going to go his way. So we want to know the word. So he reads the word again. So people say, this is our reason for being. This is the good thing. This is why, I guess, some churches used to have the Ten Commandments written somewhere in the church, didn't they? As a kind of, this is what we agree on. So he writes the law of Moses and he reads the blessings and the six tribes say amen and he reads the curses and the other six tribes say amen to that. Notice the law is not given in order that they can be saved. The law is given in order that they may know how to live having been saved. So it will be this kind of thing that will prompt the people on the day of Pentecost, and that's coming rushing up at us now, right at the end of the month, isn't it? The day of Pentecost. As you read Acts 2, we find that straight after Pentecost, as 3,000 people have been converted on that day, what do they do? They devote themselves... Acts 2.42, to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship and to prayer. Isn't that right? The apostles' teaching. Why did they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching? Because Jesus had said, if you love me, you will do what I command. So they want to know. They, want, they love God now. They love Jesus now. So they say, please tell us what he wants us to do as an exhibition of our love for him. So we respond to God's word, not because we have to, there's no other choice, otherwise he's going to get us, isn't he? If we don't do it like that, we do say, if this is what God brought us into, how then shall we live? We love being in this embrace. Being involved in this, what does it mean for us in practice? And that's where the word of God comes in. So that's why those early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They couldn't get enough of it. They just wanted more and more of it. So as you read your Bible this week... Don't read it as a kind of obligation, but a kind of, Lord, show me today what will really help me to serve you with gladness and joy and delight. Let me pray. We love the way, Father, you can turn our disasters into victories. We love the way you can turn us from fear the people of faith. With all our hearts, Lord, more than anything else, we want to express our devotion and love to you by the way we live our lives. We know we're not always consistent, Lord, and we do fail you, but we thank you that because of Jesus we have a new beginning. The past can be forgiven and we can have a new start. And as we enter into a new week this week, Lord, it's not that we just want victory, not failure. What we want 
is to walk in step with your spirit. So we want to know your spirit in all his fullness, Father. We want you to turn our weaknesses into opportunities for your strength to be displayed. We want to serve you with gladness and joy in every area of life. Thinking even of people like Des and Josie who are at a tricky point in their lives. Lord, we want them to live to your glory, to find the grace of God even in their difficulties now. And that all of us, Lord, as we serve you in whatever capacity, in whatever area, whatever place, Lord, that it will be our joy and delight to do so because we are worshippers of God. That you'll receive it as such and turn it into much more than it ever would have been merely in our hands. So we are your servants, Lord, and it's all about you. Let our lives bring glory and honour to you that other people this week will see our good deeds and glorify you in heaven. For Jesus' sake.